To most Western ears, one of the most offensive things Jesus ever said was that he was the way. If you've had conversations with people who maybe are on the margins of faith or skeptical about the faith, you've probably had a conversation about this issue. Uh, right out of high school, I went to a music college in, uh, in my hometown of Nelson, British Columbia. And um, it, it, it was a region that, um, among other things, uh, well, it's, yeah, you've got lots of loggers, lots of miners, and lots of hippies. Um, so it was a very eclectic town. And the music school didn't have many loggers or miners. Lots of hippies. It was wonderful folks, but, but I had m- m- many, almost daily, conversations as I'm self-identifying as a Christian, learning how to write Christian music, trying to figure all this stuff out. And, and this is the thing. Like, how, how could Jesus say he is the way? Can't we just have Jesus be like a good teacher? Who's just... He, he's, he's inspiring, and we can take the parts that we like, and we can discard the parts we don't like. Why does he have to say all this, like, nasty stuff about how he's the only way? What do we do with that? So, um, it's, it's one of the questions that people ask, which is why we're in the series Asking for a Friend. So maybe you've, maybe you've encountered this question, or struggled with this one yourself. I want to spend a little bit of time with that. Because churches have often gone two ways on this. One, um, there's, sometimes churches opt to go the theologically liberal approach. And they say, well, maybe he didn't really say that. Or maybe he didn't really mean that. Or what Jesus really meant was. And, and we try to kind of downplay it or avoid it or just, just kind of... He, he said it, but he couldn't have meant it. Others... Sometimes we'll go the, the opposite direction and they'll go, well, he said it because it's us versus them. And if they want to know Jesus, they need to become more like us. So what is it? So I wanted to build a little tension in the room, hopefully get you thinking a little bit. We're going to put our thinking caps on today. Um, now, the, the very core of the gospel is in, so simple. And, I mean, really, anybody with an open heart can receive it. One of the ways um, I, I, I've wondered about, like, if, if it could be even reduced to functionally two words. See what you think of this. On some level, I mean, the whole message of the gospel is God help. Of just acknowledging that, that we are finite and messed up and we need God's assistance. And through Christ, God offers it to all who will receive it. So on some level, the gospel is enormously simple. And as we dive deeper and get to know who Jesus is, there's some parts about Jesus, honestly, that are pretty complex. And... Um, one of the unique things about Jesus, because Jesus is so amazing. I mean, just like we sang about in the song, the Revelation song, this is a song about Jesus. Like the Jesus, Jesus who is above all time and space, and one day all creation will fall in worship before him. That Jesus. And that Jesus is paradoxical. In other words, that, that for Jesus there are multiple things that are true at once. Let me give you a couple of examples and then we'll move into the one that I want to talk about today.
First one is this. Jesus is both grace and truth. In other words, Jesus is the epitome of mercy and kindness, and he loves people more than they could ever imagine. And Jesus is the epitome of justice and right and wrong. And that one day he will, he will set the world right. He will eradicate the wrong. He, and it's not a balance between the two, like 50% grace, 50% truth, or I prefer 51% grace, 49%, or whatever it is. It's not a ratio. It's not a balance. It's both things in their fullness. I know. You're going to put your thinking hats, caps on today. Both things in their fullness, compromising neither. Jesus is that big. He can do that. But when we, when we encounter heresy in the church, when the church gets off track, it's when we tend to favor one over the other. And so we have churches that are all grace. It's all good. Whatever you do, you go ahead. It's fine. And then we, we, we can miss the truth of Christ. We have other churches that emphasize the truth of Jesus and lack the grace. Some of you have been in churches like that. You're still wounded by it. You know, because you're, you're just pounding the right and the wrong, and yet there's no kindness there. We always fall short of the fullness of grace and truth, but Jesus does not. He's the fullness of grace and truth, paradoxically, simultaneously, completely true. The second um, paradox of Jesus, just to give an example, it's another place where the major heresies of the church tend to land. Jesus is completely God. And completely human. All the early creeds were trying to wrestle this one through as, as, uh, as people would either lean on the deity of Christ at the expense of his humanity or lean on the humanity of Christ at the expense of his deity. Jesus somehow was both in fullness, not 50-50 split, in fullness, the full embodiment of God and the full expression of humanity at the same time. Or the one that I want to talk about today. It's another one of those paradoxes of Jesus. We're going to put our thinking caps on. We're going to work through this one. Jesus was and is exclusive and inclusive. In fact, Jesus is radically exclusive and radically inclusive, both in their fullness, both at the same time. You still with me? Okay. Okay, because we can talk about this later. There's, there's, because these are big thoughts. These are really, really big thoughts. So let's talk about this This. This inclusive or exclusive. Let's start with the exclusive first. The exclusive claim of Jesus. So here's the core of it. So we find it in John chapter 14. If you have your Bibles, find John chapter 14. Now, the, the verse, the big kind of kicker verse is, is verse 6. And it comes right after what for many of us is one of our my, my favorite passages 
Um, do not let your hearts be troubled. You trust in God. Believe, uh, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be where, with, that you may also be where I am. You know the way to the place I am going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? So we love this passage because it's all about heaven. It's about, all, about our hope after this life. Yes, 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 Jesus. I, you you, you know, you're preparing a place for me. There's a room for me in heaven. The King James translates the word room as mansion. So we're like, I got a mansion just over the hilltop. I love singing that song. Celebrate. And then we get to this verse and the room goes quiet. How do we know the way? How do we know the way? That sounds awesome, Jesus. I want to go. I want to go with you. How do we get there? How do we do it? Verse six, Jesus answered. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And things got quiet then too. And for all of us who have wondered, did Jesus really say that? He couldn't have. He was so nice. He's like Mr. Rogers in a robe. What's the deal? Like he's like he. How can he be so offensive about this? Did he? Could he have really meant that? I, I, I want you to consider this. Why did they kill Jesus? They didn't kill Jesus for being a nice guy. They didn't kill Jesus for healing all these people. How dare you do that? No. They killed Jesus because he said weird stuff like this. Where he claimed to be the exclusive way to God, to be the full embodiment of God. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Before Abraham was born, I am. He said this stuff that for any religious leader, you just go, this guy is dangerous because he believes he's God. Similarly to if you met somebody who claims to be God, you don't go, oh, I should send my kids there. You know? Oh, that's a great teacher. You don't think that when people say crazy stuff like that. Jesus said, like, for, for, I'm not saying that this isn't me saying all this Jesus' theology is crazy. This is me saying when people first heard it, it was offensive. How can you say that about yourself, Jesus? That's why he was labeled a threat. Not because he was a brilliant teacher. Not because he was an incredible, miraculous healer. But because he said crazy stuff like this. You really think you're the only way to God. That's why they killed him. For blasphemy. That's also why we take Jesus so seriously. Because he was killed for blasphemy. And the fact that, that after, after professional executioners had their way with him, as he was crucified on a Roman cross, how on the third day he rose again and was so vitally alive that every single person who saw him, and there were hundreds of people ultimately that saw him over the next 40 days, would be so convinced of his life and his vitality and his truth that they would give their lives rather than deny what they saw. 
in every single case. After a professional executioner has had their way with you, and if it doesn't work, you're going to pay attention. And yet, if Jesus was who he said he was, if Jesus really was God incarnate, God in human form, in flesh, if he really was all of these things, it's actually a greater miracle, think about this for a second, that they could even kill him at all. But Jesus said these kinds of things. I want to look at one other because it gives us a really good illustration. So in John chapter 10, Jesus said this. Verse 7 through 9. Turn there if you like. Jesus said again, Very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the, sh- the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will Come in and go out and find pasture. Jesus says, I am the gate. I'm not a gate, I'm the gate. Or to use the analogy of a door, I am the door. I'm the way. I'm the way. I'm the way. Here's an illustration that maybe will help us to get our heads around this one a little bit. Um, for where, from wherever you're sitting right now, see if you can identify where the emergency exits to this room are right now. There's six of them. Just look around, see if you can find them. Okay. It's kind of like when you get on an airplane, you know where the exit doors are. Okay. If, you're, if you're at home, if you're watching from home, I'd like you to imagine this. If, if, God forbid, in the event of a fire, how would you get out of your house? That's your emergency exit. You probably have an emergency exit plan. We actually have an emergency exit plan here at the church. If, Lord forbid, we need to evacuate the building quickly, um, and we see the instructions on every classroom, by the way, is we meet at the cross. So our evacuation plan for us as a church is meet at the cross or run to the cross. There's a big cross on the far side of the parking lot. If, If you've got kids in children's church and we need to evacuate the building, the teachers will take them right there. Because that way it's, it's out of the way of the emergency response vehicles and everyone can see it because the cross is huge. If it went in danger, run to the cross. Okay, so we've got emergency exits here in the, in the, the room and you've probably identified there's six right around you. Did, did you find all of them? So, Lord forbid, if we needed to evacuate, you know right where to go. Now, just imagine... If somebody said, those exit signs, they're so pretty. I just like them. I like how they light up in green. It's so nice. We should put exit signs above all the doors in the church because they're so pretty and they look so great. So we start putting exit signs on the broom closet and on the, on the electrical room, um, to the kitchen, because sometimes you have an emergency exit where you just need to go to the kitchen. I do. Okay. Let's pause. Okay. Now, I'm, I'm saying it in a joking way. Saying it in a joking way. Would that be kind? No. Why? Because in an emergency, it could kill someone. If you, if you take something that is not an emergency exit, like a broom closet, for example. And this, I'm not... I'm not 
speaking negatively about broom closets. I'm, I'm glad we've got them. But don't go there in a fire. Don't. And no matter how open-minded we might be about emergency exit signs, now thankfully building code actually prevents us from doing this, but it's also ethically Ethically problematic. It is not kind. It is not loving to, to, to label something that is not the way to safety as a way to safety. Do you see where I'm going with this? Now, for Jesus to say, I am the way and the truth and the life. If, let me see your eyes. If Jesus was telling the truth about who he was, that's the only kind thing he can say. Anything less than that is not truthful. In fact, it's dangerous. If Jesus is God embodied and we want to to, in this life and in the life after this life, if we want to be with God and Jesus is God, the choice is to be with Jesus, period. Jesus is radically exclusive, offensively exclusive. And as Christians... As Christ followers, and I know that's, there's tension there. I know that's hard. I felt it, especially in conversations with people I care about. We have to wrestle with that tension. We also need to remember that Jesus, in his, because Jesus is paradoxical, he is completely and radically exclusive, he is also completely and radically inclusive because truly all people, all people can find their way to the Father through Christ. Jesus and, and this is one of the things that's unique about Christianity, or at least distinctive. I don't know every world faith, but this is a distinctive aspect of Christianity. Christianity is intentionally cross-cultural. You could even call it intercultural or transcultural. Jesus is bigger than human culture. He's bigger than national boundaries. He's bigger than ethnic groups. He's bigger than everything. And even in Jesus' life, like in his ministry, even in the, in, as far as we know, the, the fairly small little chunk of the world where, where Jesus lived and ministered, he modeled this. Now, Jesus was completely and thoroughly Jewish. He could not be more Jewish. I mean, he was in the line of David. He is as Jewish as it gets. Robe-wearing, sandal-wearing Jewish kosher-eaten Jewish. And you notice in the way that Jesus treated people who were not Jewish. I mean, he commended the faith of the Roman centurion. So somebody that is not ethnically Jewish and in fact is a soldier for the occupying army. And he commends their faith. 
The very first person he reveals his full identity to is the Samaritan woman. Someone who, from a Jewish perspective, would be a half-breed. Not to mention the fact that as a, as a Jewish male, he wouldn't speak to a Samaritan female. But he did, because Jesus, he breaks boundaries, because he's radically inclusive. He's the way to God, but he's the way for all people. The Syrophoenician woman. If you read that story, it's, it's, Jesus actually says initially some kind of offensive things in order to test her. And then he commends her for her faith. Jesus crossed cultural boundaries and expectations all the time. And then we see it. We see it in the early church in some really profound ways. Acts chapter 15. I'm not going to spend a lot of time there because we, you know, we just finished an Acts series. But it's a, it's a beautiful illustration of this principle. Acts chapter 15, verses 19 and 20. So um, the church has been growing and all these Gentile churches have been getting started. And, and some of the, um, the Judaizers within the church are saying, we got to teach them Gentiles how to act more Jewish if they want to follow Jesus because Jesus was Jewish. And the early church makes this incredible, incredible Christ-centered decision. It is my judgment, therefore, this is actually James, the, the brother of Jesus speaking, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling to them to abstain from food polluted by idols, so in other words, only worship God, from sexual immorality, in other words, sex is for marriage, okay? from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood, in other words, respect life. So there's a few cross-cultural principles that we need to heed. But they took the list, in this case, of 613 Jewish laws and reduced it to three. Because the early church recognized that the gospel is for all people. And so all of the parts of the law, there's more kind of cultural stuff, like exactly what you eat, exactly what you dress, how you dress, exactly what festivals you celebrate. None of that stuff really matters. What language you worship in, what your musical preferences are, none of that stuff really matters. The only thing that matters is knowing and following Jesus. We should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. We see that in Paul, one of the leaders in the early church. We'll pick things up in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 31 through 11. 1. So he's having this conversation with the Corinthian church about um, basically accommodating one another. Verse 31, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God, even as I try to please everyone in every way. I'm not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Verse chapter 11, verse 1, so follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. So Paul is, in effect, saying to the church in Corinth, See, Jesus, he laid down his preferences so that, so that our sins could be forgiven. I'm sure he didn't 
want to go and die on the cross. He laid down, that's a pretty serious laying down of preferences, by the way. So we should lay down our preferences as well. And, and Paul, who is thoroughly Jewish and yet ministering entirely, well, at this point, predominantly Gentile churches, he's laying down his preferences, all the cultural stuff, food choices, how we dress, presumably things like music, all of it. He wants to be more like Jesus in laying down his preferences for the sake of others. And he says, so follow me as I follow Christ. So Paul wasn't saying, hey, my favorite color is blue. Y'all should have the favorite color blue. Or does, does, this, does this robe look good on me? Y'all should get the style, a robe. How come you're not wearing a robe? We're, I'm assuming that many of us in this room would describe ourselves as Christ followers but none of us are dressing, dressing like Hebrews. I, don't see any, I didn't see anybody coming to church in sandals today. I mean, maybe there was somebody, but you're crazy. Um, and super cool. But So following the cultural practices of Jesus or following the cultural practices of Paul, that's not the point. The point is following Jesus. We are saved by knowing Jesus. And Jesus finds, and the, and, and the, the gospel finds itself expressed in many different cultural forms. And it seems that is part of God's plan. So, one of the things that's happening in the Middle East right now that's, that's pretty interesting is that even in places where um, churches are often restricted, where there can, there can be very little public proclamation of the gospel, and we know that in part because we actually sponsor some people that are in some of those Muslim nations and just, it's just super, super gentle, super covert kind of proclamation of the gospel. There are Muslims coming to Christ right now. In some pretty significant ways, pretty significant numbers. In six, this is interesting to me. In um, at least if the if the data that that we've that we've got about it is correct, but in about sixty percent of the cases for, for Muslims coming to Christ, uh, it's it's also through dreams or visions, like vivid dreams of Jesus in the middle of the night, um, visions of Christ in the middle of the night. The the number one day. For, uh, for Muslims coming to Christ is in the final week of Ramadan because there's a night in, in, the, in the Muslim practice of Ramadan that's the night of seeking God. Jeremiah 29, 13, you will seek me and you will find me. If you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will lead you out of captivity. And so, and so for many of these Muslims who are coming to Christ, they, you know, they, when they gather for worship, often underground, they're, they're calling out to Jesus and they, and they use the name Isa because that's the Arabic word for Jesus. Say that with me, Isa. We usually worship Jesus with the Greek name for Jesus, which is Jesus. 
If you're, if you were worshiping in a, in a Hebraic setting, you'd be worshiping Yeshua, the Hebraic pronunciation of Jesus, which I kind of love just saying that name sometimes because it, because I wonder when, when, when Mary was holding her baby, she would call him Yeshua. And whether we call him Isa, Jesus, or Yeshua, he is still the way and the truth and the life. Whether you met him through a vision, a dream, a Billy Graham crusade, or a summer camp, he is still the way and the truth and the life. Think of the the work of, um, there's a missionary in India who, he's passed away a few years ago, but incredible impact. Um, E. Stanley Jones. He, he, oh, I see some, some heads nodding. You've heard of him. He was a Methodist. He, he pioneered the Christian ashram, right? And so he took some of the ways that, that people who were ethnically Hindu, the ways that they would seek God, they would go to these retreat centers. But rather than seeking a Hindu God, they would put their attention to Jesus. And people who were ethnically Hindu found their way to Jesus because of people like E. Stanley Jones and the Christian ashram. Or how many people here saw the movie Jesus Revolution recently? If you haven't, now you know what you can do tonight if you're, if you're snowed in. It's a really, it's a good movie. It's totally worth seeing. But it tells some of the story of, um, uh, you know, well, some of the story of the Jesus People movement. And it's a powerful reminder that the next generation may express their faith in a way that's different than the current generation. And it should for us, should for us, at least it does for me, remind me to hold tightly to Jesus and hold loosely to everything else. The style of worship is going to change. The dress code is going to change. I'm, and there, I mean, there are, there are some timeless principles that we carry through. Let me give you an example. Maybe this is a bad idea. We'll find out. Okay, if we were having a worship service, <laughs> you're like, uh-oh, where are we going with this? If we were having a worship service on the Californian beach right now, let's just imagine that, wouldn't that be great? And, and the sun was coming down, and we, we'd probably be in beach attire, and some of you would be in swimsuits, and I'd be, I'd be in what by anybody would consider, it'd be a very, 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 very modest swimsuit. Promise nobody would get excited about it. And... If I was wearing that swimsuit right now, it would be incredibly inappropriate. I only use that to illustrate, not to, not to put a horrible image in your mind, but, but, to, but, but to say the cultural forms will shift. And what Christian dress looks like will shift in different cultures. What Christian music will sound like will shift in different cultures. What, what, you, what you serve at the potluck will shift 
in different cultures. And, it, and it's fine to have your preferences. Just hold loosely to them and hold tightly to Jesus. A book I'm reading um, that you, if we put it up on the screen, it's called Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes. It's been highly recommended. It will totally shift how you read the Christmas story. Those of you that were here Christmas Eve, and, and th- this, is, this is the book that helped to kind of flesh out some of those, those things. And the reason why we, we need books like this is because the author, Kenneth Bailey, is Middle Eastern. And so, somebody who's Middle Eastern has insights into Middle Eastern cultural practices that some Western guy isn't going to know. So we need to learn from voices around the planet. We need to learn from other cultures. Diversity, Christian diversity is part of God's plan because Jesus is radically exclusive. He is the only way. And he is radically inclusive. And his way, his way welcomes everyone from every culture, from every background, from every racial group, from every socioeconomic group, from every ethnic group, from every point in history, Jesus is big enough. Jesus is the Savior. So hold loosely to all the cultural stuff. Hold tightly to Jesus. Guys, I want to be a church that is truly multi-generational. I want us to be a church that passes down a vibrant faith to the next generation. And the vibrant faith that we are passing down is not our, though it's, it's appropriate to share your favorite songs, and we will sing your favorite songs. It's appropriate to pass down some of your favorite customs and habits. It's appropriate. But that's not the point. Jesus is the point. Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the Savior of all mankind. Hold tightly to Jesus. As we close in prayer, I invite you to pray for the next generation. And um, I'm going to put up a, a phrase on the screen. Thanks for already doing that, by the way. Jesus, it's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. Jesus.